0: Fade in interior screenplay podcast day. Welcome to the first 10 pages where we talk about the part of a screenplay that must hook the reader, the first 10 pages. I'm David Ferrier. My co-host is screenwriter Kia Wilkins. And on today's show, Grant Spittori, director of I Am Mother, which stars Rose Byrne, Clara Rugard, and Hilary Swank, which you can watch right now on Netflix, I Am Mother. Grant also developed the story of I Am Mother with uh, screenwriter Michael Green. And Grant chose Jurassic Park. Now, before we get into the unique first 10 pages of Jurassic Park, we do speak at length about Grant's career, which has mostly been based out of Perth, Western Australia, which is where Grant is from. He also has some very interesting insights into getting films made in Australia and tells us how Iron Mother was designed to be makeable from its inception. It's a really great chat. Really hope you enjoy it. And if you like the show, a review on Apple Podcasts always helps. And you can get in touch with us via socials or email, first10pod, that's F-I-R-S-T-T-E-N-P-O-D, at gmail.com. All right, let's get into it. Welcome to Jurassic Park. Grant Spittori, director... Welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here. Nice Hello. to see you guys. Hey, Kia, how you doing? I'm well,
1: I'm well.
2: Hey, Grant, why did you pick Jurassic Park? I, I had to pick something, and there wasn't a great deal of science to it. <laughs> it was just like, man, I like Jurassic Park, that's a great movie. Uh, uh, I've been lucky enough that like some, some people come up to me and say, man, I love your movie I Am Mother, it's like my favourite movie of all time, which I take as like really high praise but then the first thing i think in my head and then frequently say to them is like have you seen jurassic park like <laughs> that's so sweet but there are there are lots of good movies in the world um uh, yeah and look jurassic park was such a seminal one for me growing up and then during the the lockdown last year through all of 2020 i was in the states um And there wasn't too much to do because it was like a real, real lockdown. Uh, But then for a period of time, a couple of theatre chains sort of started allowing you to rent theatres privately. So, you know, you couldn't go into them with the general public, of course, but you could go in just with you and 20 mates if you had 20 mates that you trusted didn't have coronavirus. I didn't, but I I just booked out a theatre with my wife and we saw Jurassic Park on the big screen. Uh, And it was like seeing it again for the first time. So, yeah, it's been front of mind, Jurassic Park, but it's going to be interesting dissecting it from a um, sort of script-first point of view because, you know, that's not necessarily its strength. I think it has, a like, you know, there's there's lots of interesting things to be said about the way it's conceived from a script point of view, but it's a triumph of, like, visual storytelling uh, in, you know, the, the cinematic experience. So, uh, yeah, I just thought... Really, the thought process was, got to pick a movie.
0: And here
1: Uh, I was, forensically (laughs) dissecting the the parallels between Jurassic Park and I Am Mother, your film, uh, and going, yeah, no, I I can see see why. why this film must have inspired... I am mother in so many it, ways. It probably did, and but, it,
2: you know, just in a subconscious way, you know, like that and a yeah. handful of other things, you know, I could have picked Terminator or Alien or Aliens. Like these are Star Wars. These are all the sort of films mm-hmm. that I grew up worshipping at the altar at. And and you, um, yeah, you don't really break them down and tear them apart and kind of understand how they work, how the engine works, so to speak. You just kind of admire the car and how fast it goes. But, you know, it's been fun as you as you get older to kind of appreciate how well crafted these things are and actually um you know a, a more prepared person than i may have gone and read the entire script for jurassic park before coming on your podcast i did not do that i did read the first 10 pages of the shooting That's all draft, you need but i also read and discovered a bunch of other earlier drafts so it was really interesting oh, to wow. read, you know, a couple of different iterations of the the beginning of this movie and see the different ways that it could have could have started. You might have read more than Kieran and I. Then um, I would say
0: so. We'll wait and see if you found other versions. We were uh, struggling to find one that felt like it was uh, the real one, but I feel like we did, and we will get onto that. Um, yeah, the the ones of these that we've done, Grant, where people have just. Chosen their first gut reaction, the one I want to talk about this, and I can't really tell you why. Usually, it's because they're like they're passionate about it, or it has some special place in their heart. So I am so thrilled. I'm so glad that you've chosen Jurassic Park, and I want to know the cinema that you rented out. Which one
2: was it? Oh great question. It was like the middle of nowhere, though. Like so, like they had this color code. This is in Los this Angeles. Is in, right? Well, I mean, probably technically not in Los Angeles, because I mean, I was living in LA, but um they had this color coded system where like if your county was purple or whatever the color was then theaters could open with a maximum capacity of 20 or whatever but if you were red they couldn't open at all so we were actually driving kind of like an hour out of town to go to this theater it was actually was quite a nice theater but i have no idea like what it was it was not somewhere that i would normally have gone otherwise Hopefully it's still open because can we just have a moment
0: of silence for the ArcLight? Yeah, that dude. is Oof. a true tragedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's. Right.
1: It'll be back. It'll be back.
2: Yeah, it's. It, I mean, it won't be the ArcLight. It'll be the Cinerama Dome, brought to you by Netflix, or like something like that, yeah. probably. But yeah, the theater, yeah. the theater itself, I'm sure will survive. But yeah, the whole, the whole games changed. The whole world's changed. The whole business has changed. Uh, yeah, plenty mm-hmm. theaters like the one I went to, an hour out of LA. Those are the ones that are yeah going to be permanently changed in one way or another. I think, but the the Cinerama mm-hmm. Dome in the center of Hollywood will will have enough diehard theatrical film fans that um, you know they'll be able to sell enough tickets. I say that, but it was like one L- of the first to go under. So uh, yeah, who knows? Well, the game has changed,
0: uh, and it changed a while back for dvds and blu-rays which is uh, where the commentary cast comes in because i love your this is your podcast uh that has filled the void left by the uh, demise of dvd culture where you are speaking to filmmakers and doing commentary so you can listen to the show while watching their movie which is on a streaming platform correct such a great idea. Yeah, thanks,
2: man. I mean, it, it, you know... The end. It's not a question. I'm just telling <laughs> you. <laughs> Look, because I, my first movie, I grew up watching DVDs and, and films like the one we're going to talk about today, of course, and then so I ravenously consumed the making of special features and DVD dir- director's commentaries for all of my favourite films. And And when I finally got the chance to make my movie, it was sort of certainly enhanced by the many, many hours that I spent Watching that stuff and hearing from filmmakers and learning about how movies that I love got made. Uh, and, and so when I made my movie and it came out on a streaming service, it wasn't lost on me that, like, we hadn't generated any of that kind of material and sort of given back to the ecosystem, so to speak. Um, I wasn't going to get to do a director's commentary And so I had that sort of unique lens into like, you know, really feeling its absence. And so I was like, yeah, and there's plenty of movies that are coming out on streaming now that I'd be desperate to hear um, from the filmmakers about how they got made. So I thought, well, look, I'll just go out and do it myself. And so me and a friend who worked on on the movie started this podcast called The Commentary Cast. And we sit down with filmmakers, like you said, and we we get those stories and we share them with, with our dear listeners Sorry,
0: Kia, I know I keep butting in with, with more questions, but I just have one more follow-up. Well, then wh- how come you haven't done your film yet?
2: We've, the, the way that we've approached the show is like, you know, you, the, the astute, the eagle-eyed viewer will notice that each of the episodes is labeled as like season one, episode one, season one, episode two. And the, the plan is to sort of release the, the podcast in seasons because we probably won't be able to keep it up like one new episode every week. Forever, because you know I'll go into production on something else, or you know I'm about to have a baby. I'm sure that'll interfere with the schedule. We've got enough episodes banked at the moment that we can sort of like keep rolling them out for another month or two. But at a certain point in time, we'll be like, okay, it's time to take a break, and then start banking more episodes and come back with the second season and drop a new batch. And we thought that the Iron Mother would be a good sort of season finale, so we've, Mm -hmm. we've sort of been saving it. It's hard to top some of the filmmakers we've already had. So it's kind of like, yeah, we got to go out on a low. So
1: on a <laughs> no, it's, a, it's such a good concept. And I will I very much look forward to um, to hearing I Am Mother, the commentary that you give on that. Because from from everything I've heard and all of your social media and, and all of that kind of thing, it looks like a fascinating process that you had developing the film Uh and making the film so whilst we're whilst we're on the subject would love to hear so you you're the director of the film but you are also credited as a uh, story by shared with um the yeah. with the screenwriter michael lloyd green so can you tell us about how that relationship Correct. works and and the dynamics and
2: the process yeah so michael and i go way back like you know uh, pretty frequently call in my brother from another mother, you know, to other producers and things like that to help them understand just how close we are. And we've been working together closely for, geez, like 15 years or something like that at this point. Um, and most of that time was spent on other projects that never happened, but it just me- meant that we had a really great working relationship when it came into, f- you know, finally doing I am Mother and a project that was designed from its very inception to be something that was makeable. Um, and the, and so, you know, I don't know if I'll have the luxury of that this kind of working relationship with other writers or if other writers would invite me into the process in quite the same way. Um, in features, they probably don't have much say because the director is the king and you can kind of do whatever you want. In TV, it's a completely different ball game and you, you have to dance to the, the showrunner and the writer's tune. But yeah, basically, Michael and I developed that story from a blank page to a finished script. It took about a year, Um you know many late night zoom conversations well no it would have been skype at the time uh, skype conversations about you know what was interesting us uh, in the headlines at the at the time and we twigged onto this idea of you know like what would it be like to be raised by a robot basically and then we we sort of bloomed it out from there about well what what sort of scenario would that happen in um and came up with this story and we we tend to beat everything out you know, together, scene by scene, note cards on the board, four acts, you know, like Act One, Act Two A, Act Two B, and then Act Three. Um, and we're really like, we're script um, structure nerds. So, like, we're big on Robert McKee and uh, Sid Field and Blake Snyder and all of those guys. So, you know, I, I'm a fan of uh, screenwriting theory. Uh, and that's a big part of how we develop stuff. And it's actually been, you know, part of. Uh, what I suspect I'll find myself talking about when we talk about Jurassic Park because, you know, plenty of young screenwriters and filmmakers and I would be in this category like 10, 15 years ago and we made these mistakes, Michael and I. It's like thinking that you are the exception (laughs) to the rule and like thinking you don't need to like bow at the altar of sort of screenwriting wisdom. And so like, you know, probably seven years ago, we swung hard into the kind of like Oh, this is by the book, by the letter of the law, by the rules. This is how things should work, right? And then you get good at that. And then you realize there's another level of mastery that comes in when you don't follow the rules exactly right. And you know what you can and can't get away with. Um, And so that's kind of the the stage that I'm fascinated with now. Like, uh, oh, okay, so they didn't quite do it the way that you're quote-unquote meant to do it. So why does it work so well? You know, or like this scene doesn't move the plot forward. Like, why is it okay that we just spent two or three minutes doing this? Like, why do we go to this mine where they're digging out like amber with mosquitoes in it when we're going to get told this later in an animation? Like, it, it could just be you know, a couple of sentences exchanged between characters. We don't need to do this, but actually, it's probably all the mm. better for it, mm. you know? Stuff like that.
0: I'm fascinated by something you just said. You said it was designed to be makeable. What do you mean by that?
2: Uh, the the project that Michael and I spent the longest time working on was something that we just thought was really cool um but it didn't it was in the least marketable genre like it um and it had a cast of hundreds it was um conceptually challenging because it was you know it was different uh and it had kids and horses and stunts and VFX and uh uh, like makeup effects like and it was period and it had everything in it and you know it was just not an easy thing for an executive to to say yes to um especially in the post-dvd world where like studios were kind of a little bit more gunshot take risks on first-time filmmakers you know there was a the, there have been times in the history of of the film business where you can kind of go ah look well we can take a shot on this because we're going to kill it in dvd no matter what um that era was well and truly over by the time i was trying to get movies up mm. uh and so yeah we learned the hard way that no matter how much people admired that script and that script was really admired it just wasn't a smart idea for a movie uh and so when we did I Am mother it was like okay how do we come up with a a fun, interesting, original, distinctive idea, sticky kind of idea in a marketable genre at a makeable price. Mm. Um, you know three characters, one location mm. is usually a great place to start if you're a first time filmmaker and so we we basically did that, but wanted to go for the coolest location that we could come up with and have at least one of those characters be not just another or a human right. You
0: know? Well, the uh, Blumhouse films are sort of the kings of that, aren't they? All, like that, have have really pr- um, popularised that model of of fewer speaking parts, fewer uh, locations as possible. I mean, and then like you know, really came off with um with what's the drumming movie again? The one best picture, Whiplash. Uh, Whiplash
2: yeah. Oh, Whiplash. Yeah, Whiplash so. is insane. I uh, I met the DP of Whiplash at a conference. Uh, and he told me, I think they made that movie in like sixteen oh, wow. days oh, yeah. or something. Stupid! It's like it's the way to make everybody <laughs> feel inadequate. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like holy crap, sixteen days! It's <laughs> insane, man. I'd still be finding my feet and getting the the engine running uh, on day seven, and you'd be halfway. And I mean, the, the,
1: the plus side of all that as well is the when you do stumble up across a hit, like the Blumhouse example, Paranormal Activity, you know, the, the profit margin on that is just enormous because it was cheap as chips to make. And if you get it right, then, you know, the, the margin is huge. Oh, yeah. You makes so much money off that. Yeah,
0: And it doesn't matter yeah, that, like, your, your, your Area 51s, and like the which is the follow-up from the, the guy who made um, Paranormal Activity... I think like it it became I listened to a podcast about it. It was about like it's a it was a it's a volume game where you make them mm. all as well, so long as you keep cheap, your expense cheap enough low mm. on each individual yeah.
2: one, yeah. And then one in yeah, 10 if you want you want to either get inspired or depressed depending on your worldview. Go yeah. and look at Jason Blum's CV, right? And yeah. know that every one of those movies may cost about 5 million to make and then look at how much money those movies have made at the box office and it's billions of dollars you know mm. with very little risk you know and it doesn't seem to matter how much success he gets he's stuck to the plan mm. uh you know get out can go and make a billion dollars at the box office or split goes and makes you know 700 million or whatever it is and he's like oh i'm not going to like you know on the next movie just get a little adventurous and get too confident and spend spend up big no he's like no nah, we'll just stay the course you know it's a model that's really working. I mean, like everything, you wonder how long the model can last, but I'm sure the it's a long enough timeline for him to be a very, very happy man. Yeah. Um, horror movies are one of the few genres that still kill it at the box office. I mean, everything could be different um, coming out of the pandemic, but I suspect they'll they'll be doing just fine, and superhero movies too, of course. And and it just feels inexhaustible at this point. I'm well, sure. It, yeah. I'm sure at some point it'll well, it'll be like audience are like, oh, I've had enough of that. Well, Bring there w- the there was a time
0: when it seemed like westerns were never going to go out of fashion. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. That's, all That's it was exactly made.
2: right, and it was unthinkable to everybody making westerns like it was evergreen. It was part of the mythology of America, and then of course times do change, and eventually it's not the hottest, most interesting genre out there and that's that's where we are with superhero stories right now it's like that's part of the fabric of pop culture like pop culture basically is superhero yeah. culture uh right now but um yeah i mean great marvel are still finding ways to reinvent the wheel mm. uh and and keep that fresh and keep audiences showing up so it'll be interesting to see what comes next i don't know what is next feature length yeah TikToks. quite possibly <laughs> quite possibly
1: <laughs> would, uh, would you describe I Am Mother as a horror film? What genre do you classify it as if, you, if you're forced to?
2: No, it's definitely not a horror. I think, you know, some people like to lean into the horror elements to, you know, because, because they are marketable. It's, mm-hmm. it's more of a thriller than a horror. And it's, you know, it's borderline a drama uh, because, you know, that's the cheapest stuff to do. Um, you know, horror, horror is cheap. Uh, and and that's why people do it, but um, it still is expensive in its own way. And we we basically put all of our chips on sci-fi world building and building a robot and building a set and all of that sort of stuff. We then wouldn't have had the shooting time to really draw out the the sort of terror sequences with with characters like hiding behind this and crawling around that as other characters stalk around, you know, like uh, and to really do the edgier seat sort of stuff. It, it takes a level of filmmaking precision that just takes time to shoot uh and so we didn't we that just wasn't the way that it, sh- it shook out for us and that that wasn't something that we were interested in but i I, uh, I am super interested in like stuff like a quiet place and just the the purity of that like the simplicity of that the elegance of that and like you know just bringing the audience along with you on a ride uh, and and not overcomplicating things. The like Iron Mother is a reasonably complicated world where you have to set up rules around how things work and all that sort of stuff. And and those rules change across time, and that's part of the fun of it. Um, and uh, most of the projects that I've been developing on the heels of Iron Mother are similar. Like they're like dense mythologies. Like you can look at like Inception is a is a is a movie universe. It's a where, like, part of the fun. <laughs> Well, part of the fun of Inception, right, is like the complexity of the world, and you can take that so far, and you can Mm. take that too far, as other films, you know, may have shown in recent years. Mm. Uh, But you know, I think when that stuff really works, uh, those are some of my favourite movies, right? But there's also there's like a real elegant um, beauty to like the just uh, something that's really simple, like these monsters like hunt by sound, full stop. Watch the movie, and that's all you need to know, and that's all you'll ever need to know. And I saw the sequel um, the other day, and I was impressed that they resisted the urge, like, which I probably wouldn't have, to like go aliens on it and be like, okay, Mm -hmm. this is the life cycle of the monster, and like, you only saw the male or female versions of the monster, and actually, the the you know the other gender or whatever works here's the queen or it's it's smaller yeah exactly like you know blow out the mythology but like john krasinski to his credit goes no it's the same bloody monster like it's just uh it's we're going to tell a different story around it you know and give and let the characters kind of reveal different things about themselves uh and it worked great so like you know kudos to him but but yeah all that to say i'm fascinated by like simple stuff like i mean jurassic park again to bring it back around is that there's a lot of like oh let's explain how the dinosaurs came into existence up front but at a certain point it's like red light the fences are down the monsters are are loose and the characters don't want to die absolutely yeah
0: Yeah. and we will it's
2: yeah yeah sorry
1: Oh no, I was just going to say that, yeah that it's interesting that you know you, you say "I am mother is not a horror and but so, like and you mentioned Blake Snyder before, and Snyder, I think would classify am mother as you know a monster in the house movie, which Jurassic Park is as well. Um,
2: yeah, yeah, quite possibly. We talked a lot about fairy tales too, you know, that like basically daughter is Rapunzel or something like that being held by the witch. And you know, a, a knight rides in to sort of liberate her from her tower uh, was was another way that we were looking at it. Uh,
0: we will get onto Jurassic Park in a sec, but I do want to just stay with your career and and uh, particularly Am Mother because I feel like it's unique in that um, you've made a, a film in Australia. It's an Australian film that is genre and is designed to have international appeal. And for anyone who doesn't know, you've had your own production company for a long time now. And you've built up your career making uh, primarily like the
2: TV commercials and shorts, yeah, and working up. Yeah, well, mostly TV commercials, really. Yeah, I mean, the ba- we started in just doing anything you know that that either introduce- interested us creatively or would pay yeah. us. You know, like we would do a lot of music videos and and things like that as well. Not that that paid particularly well, but it was a great. Kind of um, way to training ground to learn our skills mm. or whatever. Um, but commercials really was the thing that was like a great training ground and a sustainable business model. And in fact, Iron Mother wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for that sort of solid financial base of having a commercial production company to to lean into. Because I would invest so much time into the development and ultimately the making of the film. That I wasn't necessarily getting paid for, and I could do that because we had this business that was sort of up and running, and also um, we paid Michael to develop the wow. script. You know, like I, I used up all of the um, uh, the years of goodwill that Michael had to offer on all those other projects that that didn't that didn't work out. You know, we learned some hard and valuable lessons going down those pathways before we kind of refocused on. Um, well, let's try and do this sort of marketable sensible and makeable thing uh but by that time michael was actually working for my company the penguin empire um so yeah we, we couldn't have done it so then had the you developed commercials but i'll yeah. point out well the last the last point of that is right like i if you know if you didn't know my background and i was just listening to this podcast i'd be throwing up my hands now going oh well great i don't have a commercial yeah. production company how am i supposed to do it but like you know, you know the story, Dave. But like we, we, we didn't have one either. Like we just started one. Like we just, you know, me and a mate from uni, started making those music videos and started, you know, doing whatever work we could get our hands on and, and trying to make better and better work and uh, with the resources that we had and and this was 2005 2006 was i think i met you ago. and, and yeah. helped
0: out on a music video so like you you've been building your career over a really long time and then so had have you had you developed relationships with people at screen australia or other funding bodies to then so so you had a pretty good idea that once you and michael had worked on i am mother that you had someone to go to and you knew you'd be listened to, or did you go through the
2: blacklist with the script H-
0: How did that go. we go
2: um I didn't really know screen Australia very well at all. I don't think I mean, I know them well now. I love those guys appreciate them and am grateful to them, and hope to work with them again and again uh but I know them because of I am mother, like coming from the west coast of Australia, we're very far away from Sydney like there any mixes uh it wasn't easy for me to just pop over and be part of the, the Screen Australia Christmas Sundowner if, if if such a thing existed, right? And and you also just, you know, the <laughs> benefit of just being involved in an industry is you do sort of inadvertently and accidentally climb the, the social uh, network in a way. Like, you know, you know one producer and that producer knows other producers and then that producer um knows screen australia and you get introduced to screen australia that way like i was on the other side of the country so i didn't know screen australia at all but i knew screen west really well and screen west knew me um and there was there was like respect there but not you know as much as other filmmakers had enjoyed like it uh, it it struck me as fun and that was a result of the fact that i'd put all of my emphasis into making commercials which isn't what Screen West is about, right? They would have much preferred that I was out there making no-budget short films of any level of success because I put in for... I don't know if... I think it was for Iron Mother, actually. Although I could be wrong about this because we did ultimately get some support from from Screen West. But shortly before the sort of Iron Mother train really picked up steam and started to leave the station, I put in for some funding uh, from Screen West and just got denied uh, like I didn't even make it past the first round. I wasn't invited to interviews or anything like that. And and this was like the week that I'd come back from Cannes where I'd been recognized uh, for some commercial work that I'd done, which is like kind of the highest honor you can get in the commercial world, which is a real success for somebody from, from Perth. But Screen West didn't really recognize that at all. So I guess the real answer to your question is the script is what opened all of the doors. Like we developed this project and... Um, people really liked it you know like in many ways we we sort of circumvented the traditional australian film financing model because we came in with the gap we came in with that foreign financing like rather enthusiastically you know like there were a lot of people putting up their hands saying they wanted to finance the sort of extra bit of money that we needed to make the movie assuming that we could get money out of screen west and screen australia and and use the offset which is typically the reverse of what Australian films experience you know the gaps the hardest money to get but because we had a sort of commercial movie that could be made within this paradigm there was a a lot of interest and that interest ended up getting us on the blacklist but it was all happening simultaneously the blacklist didn't really help us get the film financed it did help us get the film cast and so it was a a really valuable thing in that sense but a lot of movies benefit from being on the blacklist because it helps them Get financed, and if we were an American movie that couldn't have taken advantage of all of the um, government support that we have in Australia, you know, like that little bit of gap money that was coming in from different people wouldn't have made a difference. We would, you know, the blacklisting probably would have helped us then find other financiers to put the whole thing together. But um, yeah, uniquely being an Australian movie, uh, it just came that part came together really easily. Like that's that was a funny part of the story because. Um, you go to Sundance and you get interviewed and everybody's got crazy stories about how hard it was to get their movie made and the financing fell over a week before shooting or whatever. But we actually had a really dream run. Like by the time we um, finished the script and started sharing it, everything went really well, you know, which was, it's just really unusual. But when I tell that story, I usually also mention, but it came on the tail end of like 10 years of, of stuffing up you know like michael and i spent heaps yeah, of time working yeah. on another project that ultimately goes went would have gone nowhere and did go nowhere um so i think we we, we took our hard knocks on that and then tried to design something that could yeah sail through the the, the rocky waters of film financing a little more successfully
0: you're a 10 year overnight success <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> now that uh, i am mother has uh
1: had such such success, do you think the the first project that you and Michael worked on together uh, has a chance of of coming back to life, or do you think it will forever well, suffer the same issues of skate like it being too big to produce and
2: well what's interesting is um, you know probably a handful of different things that play all at once here, but one of them is like with time and distance, I realize that they're right. You know, like it, that's a tricky movie to get made. It's it's a risky financial proposition, but there's also problems with it now that I can see that I couldn't see back then. You know, I'm like, ah, I just wouldn't make that movie anymore. Um, you know, and and that's a multifaceted thing. Like one thing because oh, I've sort of exercised those demons in in other movies, um, but also there's just there's a there's a level of fun that's missing from that script that i'd like to put at the center of the stuff that i make going forward and i'm like i don't know the world doesn't the world doesn't need that movie anymore and i don't need that movie anymore and 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 that wasn't true at the time of course like when it fell over it was devastating uh but that's another kind of inspiring story that i tell other people or i try to remember myself is that things that can feel like really big failures in the moment can ultimately actually be major blessings and i talked to michael the screenwriter when we were on set shooting Iron Mother, like we're in the, these beautiful sets in the air-conditioned comfort of a studio under the, the kind of eternal glow of studio lights that weren't threatening to set on us at any moment with, with no horses that were missing <laughs> their marks. And, and I said, man, isn't it great that that other movie never happened? Like this, this is a much, much better first movie to make for a first-time director, like just less chaos to have to contend with And so you can have more clarity to kind of get what you know that this story needs without having that sacrifice because you ran out of time or it rained or it was windy or that horse was grumpy and wouldn't, you know, do what you needed it to. (laughs) Like, there were just so many variables in that other project, which, you know, you have to approach any of these things with like a real willful sense of optimism. Like, because if you actually acknowledged all of the challenges and problems you're going to face, you would never even start. Um, but man, it was a much higher mountain to climb to get that other movie to work. And so I was glad that we were told that we couldn't even try. Uh, and so instead, we were like, oh, what's that mountain over there like? And we went and climbed a different one entirely. It was a lot more fun for <laughs> Do, us and probably the viewer too.
1: What, at what point in the, you know, hearing you talking about how the financing came together, when you were making the film, did you. Uh, at any point think it was bound for a theatrical release or was Netflix always the end game? And at what point did they come on board? Did they provide any of the financing or did they just buy it outright from the festival circuit?
2: It's crazy how quickly the world has changed because like, even answering these questions now, um, yeah, it feels like so unlikely a movie like this would ever have, have been headed towards a theatre, you know, uh, because movies of a certain size just don't, really succeed in the same way movies of a certain size and a certain genre like if this was a quiet place and you had Emily Blunt um you know there's a strong chance that it could really perform um but like a movie like Moon which was a key comp for us uh, as we were financing the movie and making it and aiming to release it like I don't think a movie like Moon finds its audience in the theater anymore like certainly today going out on Netflix is unquestionably the best outcome for a movie like ours, both because you'll get paid well and you'll, you'll get seen by many millions more people than you would another way. Um, that's, that's been a weird thing about this, this Australian movie that we made for never enough money with never enough time is that lots of people have seen it. Like I'll go to the barber and my barber will have seen it. Like when I went to get my visa processed to like go to America, and they ask what my job was. You know, I say, I'm a filmmaker, and like, oh, is that way going to America? Yes. And it's like, well, what movie did you make? I say, I am mother. The guy behind the counter had seen the movie. Like, unless that guy was a big fan of the Luna Leedaville or whatever the equivalent is, you know, in your hometown. It's like, you know, not that many people go and see little indie movies that that play in your art house theatre. So it's kind of crazy, like, the, the, the reach that you get through Netflix. But to circle back around to your real question, we absolutely thought, because we were making it in, in practically another era now, um, that it was going to be a theatrical movie because that's the sort of... We knew that, like, it could go to streaming, but um, and we were open to that, Like we, but we also weren't you know assuming that that was the holy grail and the only place to go in fact the film was partially financed through foreign pre-sales which is like a theatrical focused model um and we'd sold most of the territories worldwide before we went to sundance but at sundance when we and we strategically had like china and the u.s left open which are like the biggest territories and um We were hoping to sell them kind of with with maximum buzz at a festival. Uh, But as it turned out, at Sundance, Netflix were the the people that most hungrily wanted the movie. So they they bought the movie for the US, but also wanted to buy back all of those territories worldwide, which is like a pretty common thing that they do. And some distributors love that because they get paid back what they they put out with a a premium on top. They get a, a little kicker for no risk, really. Um, but, other distributors hate it because it basically undermines their business model it 's like, and so um a couple of territories didn 't sell the movie back to Netflix like we went out theatrically in like Thailand and Malaysia, and Germany was a big territory um, I think in Russia as well, we went out theatrically, but pretty much everywhere else in the world was was Netflix. Maybe the guy at the the count the counter the counter at the Australian consulate is secretly a Russian spy, and he saw it at the movies. But I, I think most likely he saw it on Netflix. We should move on to Jurassic Park. But I just want to know,
0: short answer: Having spent over ten years building up to the point of making I Am Mother now now that you're it's out and and it's sort of uh, complete, are you still keen to make more
2: more movies?
0: Yeah, <laughs> or more, I am mother. Um, no, more like has the has the whole experience. Did it did it live up to your expectations? Did it surprise you? Did it, did it disappoint you? Did you learn things about yourself you never knew? Did you come out of it going, "I want to de- jump straight into this again," or "I need a big break"?
2: Yeah, I think it's a great question because I think that a lot of people quite sensibly come away from it and go, "You know what? I built my entire life around getting to this point." Um, And it wasn't quite what I thought it was going to be. And I want to pivot in one way or another. And I think that that comes with shame and and an unreasonable kind of shame. Like, I don't know why anyone would begrudge anybody for kind of like thinking things might be one thing and then experiencing it and go, oh, you know, there was really no way for me to know until I did it. And I did it and it sure wasn't fun. And there's heaps of the process. There's like a lot of the process that isn't fun, you know. Uh, and, and, and that feels like a douchey thing to say, especially when you're talking to people that want nothing more than to like just get their chance to make a movie. Um, but, it, you know, that's just a fact. And I'm sure those same people know when they, like, if they're making short films under a certain set of parameters or whatever, um, there's times that are unpleasant. Well, on a feature, there's a lot more time that's unpleasant because it takes a lot more time to get it made. Um, but... The long and the short of it is from my point of view is that, you know, I was really lucky this, this time around that, you know, it was an entirely studio or largely studio bound shoot. So, you know, I wasn't dealing with having to travel to weird locations and have my vision screwed over by factors that were outside of everybody's control. Yeah. Um, And I had family and friends around me that were really supportive of like going all in. Um, And, and then the movie was well received, you know, and, and like, uh, And I can't imagine because it's actually, it's still quite psychologically destabilizing to like tether your self worth to something and then let it out there in the world and let people decide if you and your like movie are are worth anything at all to them. Uh, And like we were really blessed with a positive reaction, but you know, I think any filmmaker, if they were being honest, would say it wasn't positive enough. I want more, you know? And so, like, you still kind of go, ooh, wow, like, you know, imagine if this had gone another way. Like, if if people had had just said that was a giant waste of time and a turd and I don't know who made this and why they would do it. Like, uh, yeah, I don't know what my answer would be then because I would have tried just as hard to make the same movie and, you know, just due to a fluke of circumstances and timing, it could have been received poorly and that's really got to be quite crushing. So, you know... I don't know. That's probably an overly nuanced answer than you needed or wanted. But I love the it. real answer is, yeah, I, it was a great experience. It turned out well. And like I totally am, am keen to, to do it again. But you certainly come away with clarity that it takes so much from you that you want to love what it is that you're working on. And, and you know you don't want to just yeah. go and do it for, for a buck because there are quicker and easier ways to make a buck, I'm sure.
0: And it, fe- it feels like it happened at the right time like you were ready for it and you and you knew what to do to put it really dumbly and 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 um and the experience and, and it shows that you're a professional with that many years of experience and you were able to execute and it's and um that's yeah man. i'm so I,
2: thrilled to hear that's awesome i love that's being so cool. on set you know like you, you, we don't get to do that yeah. enough like full stop the great thing about you know coming from a background in directing commercials is that for for that period in time leading up to making Iron Mother, I'd be on set every month making a commercial. Whereas if you were ma- if you were a short film focused filmmaker, or you know, or a first time filmmaker that's just stepping up to the plate, kind of having done nothing, and there are people that somehow do that and crush it, like that's amazing, good for them. Um, but yeah, like I, I was way more nervous stepping onto the set of my first commercial than I was stepping onto the set of the feature film because yeah you know, yeah we did have enough experience behind me that I was like I knew what needed to be done and and we enjoyed it um the process of of doing it but that's not always the case and there's so many different reasons for why you know those workplaces can be really unpleasant for um mm. but yeah this one was great so more of that I'm sure Jurassic you Park come. was great too <laughs> Spielberg, probably. I'm sure. Anyway, that's all the time we have. Uh, no,
0: okay. Let's uh, let's let's yeah. let's. I could. I really could go another two hours just talking about your career and just your experiences because I I think it's really fascinating. And we're finding with this podcast, this is the part that people really love, is hearing about people's careers and people's experiences, particularly in Australia because we've got such a unique sort of ecosystem um, in the film industry, but
2: anyway well, no, I'm going to, got to move turn it around now that, that this is the most interesting part of the podcast because you you glossed over our history Dave, and like how, how far we go back, are you going to elucidate any more for the listeners like how we met and, and uh... I've been
0: hanging around
2: Grant for over a
0: decade <laughs> when when I, I, I don't even remember how I got in touch with you. I think I read about you in Express Magazine or something like that. You were, uh, But I met Grant on uh, shooting a music video in Up near the shops <laughs> That's there. That's right. And I was just like, I'll do whatever you want. And I was like 18 or 19, and I've basically never left him alone since. I, I think that the and, real um,
2: lesson there, though, right, is that everybody talks about having an eye for talent or whatever, is that, Dave, you've got the eye for talent, man. You were like, i just got to team up with Spitore and fly on his angel wings as far <laughs> as they'll carry me. Um I from 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 the
0: moment I met you, I knew like none of this, none of how your career has progressed has been a surprise to me.
2: Ah, what happens because next Dave? You, Tell me, what do I got to do?
0: Well, I'm on the podcast. you're going to get a little call from a from a little gold man named Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> that's
2: what Spielberg's going to like. What my crystal yeah. Google on. alert's going to go off when he sees there's a new podcast out about Jurassic Park. He's going to listen to this and he'd be like, Yeah. Wow, Grant really gets it. Let's get him to do Jurassic World Four. No, well,
0: you're you're gonna be the next Joe Dante. He's gonna he's gonna tap you on the shoulder, and you're
2: gonna make Gremlins. Yeah, dude, Gremlins reboot. I've got a great idea for a Gremlins reboot. <laughs> that's a that's a that's a chat offline. But um, yeah, that's a. That's, uh, <laughs> Uh, it's been fun you you yeah we wouldn't have been able to pull off a lot of the things that we did in the earliest parts of our career without without Dave stepping up and like helping out. I've just been I've just been hanging around and I've
0: enjoyed like you know we used to do the uh like uh, social things like the um Christmas car wash. yeah dude great times i I still have a scar on my hip from uh doing, like down that big grassy hill in Fremantle sliding down it on a bodyboard and hitting a uh, uh like a um Hitting a... Sprinkler, uh, probably? ...thing. Sprinkler, that's Dude. the word I was looking These for. These are
2: the risks that you take. That's uh, what makes it so much fun.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's an extreme sport. So, yes, I've been... Uh, um, Grant and I have known each other for, for quite a while, and I've just been hanging around.
2: Um, let's talk about Jurassic Park. Yeah, man. I'm here for it. I came prepared, the Screenplay, Unlike you guys. I'm out there like searching <laughs> on no. other script drafts yeah. <laughs> <laughs> read <laughs> multiple Just versions completely uh, embarrassing. A screenplay
0: by David Kett based on the novel by My- Michael Crichton and it, uh, and um on an adaptation by Michael Crichton and Malia Scotch Mano. The one that we read was dated December 11, 1992. I think that's one Is that, that the
2: I one read that too? I that was one of the ones that I read guys. Yeah. Um I say this like I really gone deep <laughs> on the research, but I probably read like thirty or forty pages maximum between you know multiple drafts. But yeah, I think that that was the one that I found first, and it seemed to most closely match um, what's actually on screen. Um, and then yeah. I actually found one that's like the shooting draft that actually has the sort of colored pages and handwritten notes from I think I'm guessing David Kep. Um, wow. Yeah, I found some website that was that was basically just reposting. Uh, things that had been previously posted on David's website so they if if okay. you can believe random website one or a um, I guess these are some pretty pretty authentic documents and they look pretty authentic too you know with the handwritten notes and the kind of script revision codes and all that sort of stuff all I can say is it must have been a bitch to like published scripts at this point in history, like the starred drafts, like the way that they're starred on the far right column of the page, it's like, man, that looks like a pain in the ass with somebody that's typing this thing out. Um, I don't know what final draft one was like or whatever <laughs> it was that they were typing on back then, but brutal. Yeah,
1: pretty rudimentary stuff. Yeah.
2: The, um, the I mean,
1: the, obviously the podcast's called The First Ten Pages, but the first thing that leapt out to me reading this was... That it's a fairly long, longer than you would expect to see these days, uh, opening sequence. Until we're getting to the inciting incident, which happens on about page sixteen. Which ordinarily you'd probably be advised to get into the action a bit quicker than that. But it's, and I think that's very period specific. That in the nineties, you know, you could take your time a bit more. And and I guess no one's at that point. No one's telling Spielberg what to do, yeah. he's like, I'll, I'll take as much time as I need to set up my story. Um, but, yeah, 16 pages before we're at the inciting incident, which is uh, Hammond visiting Grant um, at, at his dig yeah. and offering him to come to the island. I feel to like, the the,
2: you know, like, in inciting incident, wisdom was sort of, like, page 15, and then it was page 10. And, like, now... I've been really trying to think about stories about like how do you get inciting incident on page one um and then do any character stuff kind of on the on the run right because that's just the way uh, audience appetites have shifted. We had um uh the director of spontaneous Brian Duffield come on uh our podcast the other day and and the inciting incidents for spontaneous is in the first like fourteen seconds of the of the movie and he talked Whoa. about the pressure that they'd had. To, um, you know, start off... I don't know if you guys have seen the movie, right? But um, it's basically about kids that spontaneously explode. Um, And so (laughs) the opening scene is like... um, uh, Our main character in close-up at her desk. And then the kid in front of her explodes, right? Uh, And then you're off to the races. Like, holy crap, why are kids exploding? Who was this kid? Why might they have exploded? Who might be next? Right? Uh, And so they talked about, well, should we start the morning of, like, meet the main character as she wakes up, gets out of bed, have a breakfast table scene, meet the parents, find out who she is? Uh, And he came down hard on the side of, like, all of that stuff is boring. Like, we've seen that a million times before. And, like, it's not that character revealing. What's character revealing is how does the character react to this incredible situation? Uh, And I thought that was a really interesting distillation of something that I'd been feeling, which is but you know, part of what we were talking about, the difference between movies going out on streaming and uh, in theater is that like in the theater, you make a real bloody commitment to a movie like you you, like you put a ring on it, like you go and like you buy that movie ticket and you sit down in that chair and you're in it for the long haul. And it's a real bloody statement if you divorce that movie and walk out. But like watching a movie on streaming is like Tinder dating. It's like I'll oh, check this out. I'll watch the first five, ten minutes of this. If it doesn't grab me, I'm gonna like bail out. You know, I'm gonna you know say I've got other plans and 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 pull the ripcord. Um. So yeah, what you were saying is right. That like I think, uh, in the nineties, you could take as much time as you want to get going if you if you want to. Like if you've got cool enough shit going on in the opening moments, the audience will come along with you.
0: Well, we like, t- TV shows like new TV shows. We've talked about a few of them on this about having that cold open that hooks you uh like for for example breaking bad it cuts straight to him in the rv and he's got his pants off and you're trying to work out what's happening whereas jurassic park and and like you say with a film you've bought a ticket you're sitting in the dark you'll give it time and yet this does jurassic park does have a cold open it does have the scene but there is no there's no char- there's none of the main characters are in it maybe you know a, a version of like the you just said with the spontaneous one is that well maybe now it would be grant is already there he's part of the crew who
2: are moving the dinosaurs and then we find out but um yeah i mean i think it's you know further evidence of the fact that there are exceptions to every rule i mean i expected jurassic mm. park to fit the model less than it ultimately did when i when i read it and when i really thought about it because i could just remember like okay yeah the opening scene and grant's not there and then we go to like um i don't know where they are but they're like at the mine site and they're talking about stuff that we sort of have seen and sort of haven't seen and it's like what's going on and then and then hammond's not there because hammond's off like seeing his daughter who's getting divorced but then actually he's showing up at the dig site it's like that's there's a bit of a schism there but you know in the end i think it kind of you know (laughs) it does work like the, the real kind of anomaly for me was that going to the dig and seeing the kind of um amber coming out of the side of the mountain because yeah if you did a cold open character died at jurassic park and then cut to the people that have to deal with the fallout of that like these people who have their regular life their status quo is working on a Uh, an excavate archaeological excavation digging up dinosaur bones and then somebody shows up and upends their world like in a whirlwind literally uh, and says like I I have a quest I have a mission that I want you to to go on like that is pretty conventional it's that intermediary scene that you don't really need well I mean also Hammond would be there at the raptor scene in the opening moments or whatever like somebody would be there but Mm -hmm. yeah Spielberg's like nah no one gives a shit about that just give me some spotlights Give me some sound effects. Give me some John Williams, and they'll they'll come with me wherever I want to take them.
1: I think what it does as well, really well, is that it it allows it buys him some time to have a slower next. Ten pages because you've posed this really interesting mystery and dramatic question that the audience wants to stick around to because you don't catch a glimpse of the monster in that opening hook. So you're sitting there going, oh, I want to get back to that monster. I want to see what's inside that cage." So you're willing to put up with, you know, a fairly long expository character-based scene um, before we get back into the story. So you're sort of, yeah, buying some time for yourself.
2: Yeah, I didn't. I didn't go. Um... Like I said, I didn't keep reading past it, and I didn't watch the movie ahead of coming on the show, which I should have. I feel I feel bad. But I know the film reasonably well, and to your point about like delayed satisfaction, yeah, I mean, it's not like we get back to that monster anytime soon. It's not even kind of in the turn to act two, right? Like, you really have to wait. They go on that first tour, and they see practically no dinosaurs. Yeah. I think all you see is a stegosaurus or triceratops lying on its side, and that's as, as much as you see. Well, no, you do get the the brontosaurus, right? And you get all the wonder of that for a moment. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I suppose actually that's your payoff. Uh, but the danger only comes much, much later. So, you know, Spielberg is really good at making wonder entertaining. Because mm. a lot of that is like, oh, we're just looking, walking around looking at stuff. You know, like characters aren't necessarily making choices. Uh, they're just like literally along for the ride. Uh, but it's all kind of awe-inspiring and you're happy to, to, to go along with it I mean in the end it's it's great like the dramatic fodder and the choices that get made are fantastic but yeah it, it is slow going to start with in lesser hands a director could be quite nervous but Spielberg knows where the veins of gold are yeah really kind of minds them absolutely yeah
1: yeah, overall, there was far less dinosaur in the film than I remembered rewatching it this time. I was like, oh, he was actually pretty sparse with what you saw and so geniusly pulled out tension from what you didn't see you know shaking palms and like the bloodied carcass of the animal that had just been killed by the dinosaur and you know Mm. the the iconic water cup was the you know just as we're about to meet the t-rex you know you see everything but the dinosaur for as long as you possibly can um and just like builds that
2: anticipation in you that's i mean i could do a whole hour long podcast just on that sequence you know the t-rex attack in the rain Mm -hmm. like so incredible um yeah, I actually now that I have the script or three different versions of the script, I'm going to scroll ahead and and read that and see how that's on the page because that's another thing that I've been really mindful of is that like when you are blocking out a story and you're looking at it from 40,000 feet, you know, like really zoomed out and you're putting those note cards on the board, there's a tendency to make the events like very big and like very plot focused, like oh, you know, so and so wanted to climb the mountain or get to the um alderan and then alderan's not there anymore holy crap alderan's not there anymore like that's a really big change to the fundamental um proposition of what our characters are trying to do right but a lot of great movies and jurassic parks in this category too have really small obstacles that are like i've really played out from a boots up level like oh we're out of power or like um oh that person left the car and, like, uh, oh, no, they found torches and turned the torches on and, like, are shining the lights like crazy. So, like, I'm going to get out. So, like, a sequence in Jurassic Park, like, like, that one sequence, has so many beats that make it what an audience considers to be a sequence, not necessarily what a screenwriter considers to be a sequence, right? But um, it's just interesting to me that, like, yeah, I, I've been trying to practice that kind of art of, like, no, like, stay right in the moment. Stay, like, right down at ground level and go, what's the story right here? Because, ah, oh, that sequence is fantastic. You know, like the torches come out. So Dr. Grant finds the flare. And so he goes and, like, you know, uses the flare plus his archaeological, like paleontological knowledge to go, oh, okay, I'm going to throw the flare. But then um, Ian is uh, you know, too much of a hero to kind of let that be it. So then he gets out and puts himself into jeopardy and changes the dynamic. And then the car goes over the cliff and they're like hanging over the car with the cable and then they're in the tree. Like it just keeps going and it's all right there. Like, and, and the flip side of that is, um, you know, I'm talking about the difference between the way I would conceive a plot um, and the way that that might turn out in, like, just a sequence of events, like, in real time within in, in a movie, right? But the, what you more often see in modern movies now is that kind of idea, but with, like, a blockbuster VFX budget. And so it's really sprawling, and it kind of is, like, overly bombastic, and there's no real stakes, and it's, like, anything's possible, and thus you're never really that worried about the characters. But here everything's quite contained. Like, it's really quite focused and like obeys physical laws and it's it's brilliant yeah i'm I'm a fan
1: it is it's unbelievable and the you know midpoints are are so, you know, you ask so many screenwriters what the toughest thing to crack is and so many will tell you it's the midpoint and and there's so much conjecture about what it needs to do and what is a midpoint. And yet when you see someone who nails the midpoint, it feels so inevitable and so obvious and you're like, why can't... Why is not every screenplay that easy to just go, well, of course the midpoint is dinosaurs are on the loose in Jurassic Park. Like, of course that is the midpoint of this film and how you... How you turn it, but it, at the uh, time, man, so,
2: I mean, like, it's so easy to say that, right? But or is dinosaurs are on the loose? The turn into act two, you know. It's like because you, uh, you, if you were lacking in confidence and you were overly eager to please, you would be like, well, we can't have half of the movie's runtime be like everything's reasonably mm-hmm. fine, like we're just touring around a theme park. It'd be interesting to know, like in Jurassic World, with a more modern sensibility, how quickly things go haywire yeah
1: it would be really interesting i dare say he would have gotten the note at the time as well you know could could we pull this forward a little bit but uh, he probably stuck to his guns and and went no no like i know i
0: know what i'm doing i I, uh haven't watched it closely enough recently enough to know but chris pratt does have all the stuff with the um, he's taught the raptors so you do get some nice dinosaur action before things go wrong
2: and this you know I find it interesting too how I don't know how deep to get with this right but like you come into an industry you come into a craft and you're struggling to learn it and you there's a perception as you're learning these things that what you're trying to learn is static like there is a way to make a great movie um And I need to know how to do it. Like, I need to find the way to make a great movie. But as you get to the point where you actually could potentially make a great movie, what constitutes a great movie has changed. Because there's been 20-something years of people making movies like this, right? Like, so, um, you know, the classic example is another Spielberg movie is Jaws, right? Like, the golden rule for the longest period of time has been... What people can imagine is scarier than what you can show them. People love to just say that. And there's been so many movies that do that. And I think the greatest example of somebody that said, well, what if we just did the opposite? Um, was a, a movie, another movie that we had on the commentary cast, which was Crawl, like a really underappreciated kind of roller coaster ride of a movie. Like, um, And Alex, the director on the podcast, said it was very intentionally his choice to weaponize the audience's expectation that half of the movie would be spent crawling around in the dark, kind of fearing crocodiles or alligators might be there. And, like, the biggest scare of the movie is, like, she goes down in the basement and the time where you, you know, you kind of intellectually know that she's Safe because you know she's not going to get attacked now. That just doesn't happen. And the first thing that happens is she gets bit like on the leg. Uh, and I was like, "It's great because you just like a bullet out of the gun and you're away." Uh, I thought that was really interesting that he thought about it that way. Like, um, yeah, so things change and like different people can pull off different things at different times. Um, it's fascinating. Yeah, now, not to say that someone couldn't do you know a, a Jurassic Park again uh and bring these sort of philosophies to life in a new way they they might um
1: yeah no i think it's a really tricky. good point that about you know about it not being a static thing and you know the zeitgeist changes and people's you know the contract with the audience changes and audience expectations yeah. and yeah
2: it's a good way to put yeah, it yeah
1: absolutely um I mean, we should talk about specifically the first ten pages, I suppose, and just and that.
2: <laughs> I refuse to. The ending of Jurassic Park is really interesting, though. <laughs>
1: oh, don't even get me started on the ending. I'll I'll I really will Yeah, run that's away emblematic with all... of some Spielbergism. Yeah, uh,
2: but yeah, no. The, in the first ten pages, like the thing that that struck me was really that that scene where they and I mentioned this already, like they go to the mind site and I was like, why do this? Like why go to this effort and expense and like use expend your audience's goodwill and storytelling resources on this? Like, do you guys have a take on like why that stayed in the movie or should be in the movie in the first place?
0: I wanna say just to build the myth of Grant's character, but you meet him pretty soon after. Or or just build build the scale of um Of Hammond, and that, you know, he's sending uh, lawyers around the world, and then you hear about this guy that that you then meet uh, in the following scene. But, um, man, I don't know, beats me.
2: What's interesting you say to build up Grant, like, I think that's valid. What was interesting in reading those earlier drafts is that Hammond was at the dig in the earlier drafts, and it was changed uh, so that he wasn't. I obviously have no idea why. They didn't write that on the script to, like, inform me. (laughs) Uh, but uh, I assume that it was kind of like what you're talking about to give Hammond an entrance like Hammond has such a great entrance now I mean and so does Dr. Grant both of them sort of benefit from that that sort of um, that setup and I think you're right too to say that it sets up Hammond as this kind of like billionaire with his fingers kind of spanning the globe and the resources to do kind of anything and everything I think it also um, sets up some like credibility like that the idea that like this is a movie that's a big fantasy crazy notion like you know we're going to bring dinosaurs back like spielberg's wanting to go to the extra effort to like make it credible that that no there's a way that this could work so the audience really suspends disbelief and goes along on the story not some fanciful you know crazy uh, adventure, but like something that's based in in a recognizably human world, and like I think if you just kept it to, um, what was what's the thing called like Professor DNA, yeah, a <laughs> yeah. little, little, little animated character, like him just explaining it, it might have felt like hand waving, um, like oh, don't pay too much attention to this; it's just exposition, like c- yeah, carry sure. along. Like I think actually seeing that stuff, but I think also like you know it's it's like that real classic bloody fundamental storytelling principle which is like show don't tell right Mm -hmm. like if this is really fundamental to like how this whole operation works you could just talk about it or you could show it and like go to the effort of of showing it um yeah works really good at that you know like really bringing you along that
1: was that was my take as well that you know is more interesting to see it than to get the little animatic um later on but also well i guess two things it has It also asks a second dramatic question, which I think, again, helps you delay getting to some really juicy action a bit longer because, you know, assuming you don't know exactly what the film is about going into it, you know, you're seeing this amber, you're seeing the dig, but you don't fully understand how that connects to... You know, what we're about to see, which is the, you know, bringing dinosaurs back to life. But also because that anim- animation, you know, Mr. DNA comes after we've already arrived at the park, we see the, you know, we see the first few dinosaurs, we see that kind of wonder moment, and they do move in herds. I, I wonder whether they feared, unless they had grounded it in some science, that you lose the audience before you have a chance to give them the exposition that grounds it in, in science, so it's putting it right up front. It's It almost serves as the kind of um, title thing in a lot of sci-fis of, like, you know, here's here's a few lines of text that just give you what you need to know so you don't have to question things anymore and you can shut that part of your brain off that's critical thinking and just go along for the ride now. Yeah. Um, it just lets you... It signs you up and... sets you, the rule of the yeah. world.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a bloody novel concept, you know, because how, otherwise how are you going to clone these these dinosaurs if you can't get your hands on their blood? Like, I remember that being a kind of mind-blowing idea, even as a as a youngster watching this for the first time. Yeah, it does yeah. make it
1: feel so plausible. You're like, yeah, why yeah, can't why we do Why haven't
2: they done this? We <laughs> should try that. Come on.
0: Yeah. Get to work, everybody. Oh, I will point out that um, the first ten pages in the script that we read, it only gets to the part where Grant is threatening that... Snotty kid with the raptor claw, but um, they don't meet Hammond till page 16, so it is an extended sort of uh setup in this group,
2: yeah, yeah, and that's yeah, and it was interesting like reading those earlier drafts too, which was kind of like that exercise, like was even more illuminating than just reading what was on the page versus to like what ultimately got shot because the 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 notion that Grant um is uncomfortable around kids seem to come in quite late you know um it wasn't in the earlier drafts uh and it it really got focused down like to and it ends up being quite elegant you know like um Mm. coming out of the back half of that scene and ellie saying you know if you want to scare the kid like you could have just pulled a gun on him and like do you want one of those things and all that sort of stuff um even the the um the lead up grant going and you know they fire that thing into the ground and they do the testing and stuff like there's a lot of extra kind of just stuff that in retrospect is like just cut this like nobody cares about how this machine works in any more detail or any other problems that you've been facing kind of at this dig like I think the the, the process of develop development like and refinement really did lead them to the best version of that scene and brought what mattered to the fore because actually in the earliest draft it's not even a kid that 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 challenges Doctor Grant, and that really? Doctor Grant comes back to and says, um, "You know, gives that wonderful story about being hunted by raptors." It's it's another paleontologist. Or oh, that's so
1: interesting. It's like they they yeah. felt the that it was missing an emotional arc for the protagonist, so they just slapped on a like. Well, let's turn him from someone who doesn't want kids into a father figure, and and they do it in you know. In a few scenes, they say it's really elegant. Like the final scene of the film is so is a wordless moment of him sitting in the helicopter, um, whole, you know, cradling those two kids sleeping in his arms, and you know he he exchanges the look with with Laura Dern and. You know, you don't need oh, you great. don't need the scene that's like, you know what? Maybe we should have a kid. You just know yeah, in that helicopter yeah, that those guys are going home and making babies, and it's yeah.
0: <laughs> Can it's- I clarify? In an earlier draft, it was another paleontologist who said, "Looks like a
2: six-foot turkey Lord, to I- me." I, I'm i desperately hoping I still have the tabs open. I I don't know if it was another no, paleontologist okay. or who it was. It might have been, like, the caterer or something, but it certainly wasn't a kid. Mm. Um yeah, which I thought was interesting. I noticed bit, in I, the
1: draft we read that yeah, they more. cut some of the exposition around why the kid is there uh, in the film, uh, and so really? and, and when I watched the scene again, I was like, "Who is this kid? And why is he here?" But in the script, it explains that you know he's because he's pulled so many favours from people, you know, because they don't have any funding, so he's having, you know, he's asking a lot of people that they've been allowed to bring their kids along to the dig, and it explains that all um, in much more detail, which they obviously... Wow,
2: that's fascinating. Yeah. uh, You know, it's interesting, uh, because I just went with it, right? But that's, like, one of those cases where the production design... And the costume design sort of set it up, right? It looks like almost a commune when you see this place. It's like there's caravans, and and I just could believe that family. If you want this kind of work, you know, you're homeschooling your kids out in the middle of the Nevada desert or whatever. Um, So I went with it. But it's, yeah, it's interesting that they went to the effort of kind of explaining it and then decided they didn't Mm. need it. Yeah. Kids, you want to talk about the,
0: the dramatic tension of Hammond showing up? And being sort of mysterious about his intentions. And just sort of how effective that is. Even though it's, it's, it's sort of drifting us to and beyond the first ten pages. But that's like a really great part of this screenplay.
1: It's, yeah, it's a hell of an opening. I mean, that entire scene... I think it's really interesting, you know, you were talking about the director that you were speaking to, Grant, who is like, no, get. let's get into it quicker. We don't need those sorts of scenes. We can do them later. Like, I, I think this scene is so masterful in how many different things it's doing at the one time. There's, you mm-hmm. know, they're setting up character, flaw, want, you know. Um, you, you meet future antagonist in the form of the, you know, you're learning about how deadly the raptor is. Um, it's planting the theme, and then it... The arrival of Hammond essentially sets up the kind of central thematic argument of the film, which is, you know, progress versus. You know, or nature um, versus
2: science and Wouldn't progress, it, yeah, or people like a that want Frankenstein wanna... kind of, yeah. Thing, right? Like you're too busy wondering if you could to work out whether you should.
1: Exactly, yeah. And you and you yeah. meet Grant kind of complaining about computers, and you learn that his job may soon be redundant because of computers. And then this guy swans in who's you know got this mysterious um, ability and and opportunity to where he can do this kind of miraculous thing, which really would make grant's job redundant um yeah it's yeah i think it's it's doing so many things at the same time and that it just felt like a master class to me and how to do that
2: and like uh, i i get always get distracted like these days about especially when you're sort of analyzing a thing in retrospect about how much heavy lifting the visuals are doing right like the opportunities to kind of further imbue character and story into the surrounds like when you get in there and you sort of see this this trailer that they're working from you kind of know that these are people that are scraping you know to get by compared to like other in-gen operations that you see in other versions of the movie that look particularly well resourced like we get it like the minute we see these these characters what they're wearing and where they're working when hammond comes in and is like you know, I'll pay for your dig for the next three years. You know they need it, like, um, and like that's not just in the performance; it's also in what we're seeing. Uh, this may not be the podcast to celebrate that at length, but you know, there are other beautiful things that the script's doing to make that clear too. The fact that Hammond is a um, you know key investor, and the fact that he has a pre-existing relationship and he has leverage over these people is an interesting thing too, right? Like they're coming out. It's like, if you do this for me, I'll basically, um, you know, set you up. And, and you owe me already, as a matter of fact. So, like, there's this sort of like moral question about like, what kind of review are they going to give this place that, that hangs over the movie.
1: Yeah, it's so great when they burst into the trailer and Hammond's there and it's like, who the fuck's this guy? And then he very quickly shuts her up and he's like, this is uh, the person that's uh, making all of our brilliant work possible. <laughs> and you watch yeah. them sort of backtrack. It's a great moment.
0: Do we ever, I don't think it's, it's not at all necessary, but do we ever find out why Hammond is so interested in dinosaurs or even where he got his billions of dollars from? Or do, you, do we just sort of accept you know, it? that he's yeah, like he yeah it's just it's his, it's his pet project and it's what he's really interested in he's, he's an eccentric and, uh,
2: he's an old oil tycoon from Scotland yeah there's a sense too like you know in his wardrobe right that like he's kind of like an explorer of yeah. old. yes you know, that, that, there a is a bit of a like safari, safari type man. Yes. yeah yeah which I think again is like you're doing a li- just a little lift through like the way the, the you know that he's dressed that tells you okay this could just be a childhood passion of his like that of all of the different ways that he could make money this one had a little extra bit of luster on it because he does have an affinity and a fondness for doesn't hurt that he's in Attenborough uh so there's <laughs> that going on as well some meta um, but but uh, yeah it's fast it's so fascinating to me like what. Is or isn't worth focusing on, right? Because you can imagine, like, if if we were the three guys tasked with cracking this script or developing it up for Spielberg, you'd ask that question. Like, do we need to understand Hammond a bit better? Like, where he came from, yeah. how he made his money, why he cares about this? Um, do we need a flashback to him as a child playing the that? origin di- story yeah. where <laughs> yeah, bitten by a dinosaur. a little bit more on that. And you wouldn't be wrong to ask... Uh you get a little bit late, late, late in the script where he talks about the flea circus and like that he wanted to uh, create attractions that were real or whatever, but I don't think that's quite what you're talking about, and I don't think what you're asking is unreasonable. Um so uh you know, they just decided that they didn't need it and history bears out that they didn't.
1: I wonder if you it's know? in the novel
0: if there's more more well, backstory there knows. in the novel. First ten pod at gmail.com how how much screenwriting training do you have, Grant? Uh, have you learned on the job, or have you done any sort of formal? Uh,
2: pretty program? much exclusively on the job, and just like reading books uh, about it. And Save then I the did cat. I did go to a, I did I, I went to a McKee course. Oh, cool!
1: <laughs> how, gr- how great yeah. is the McKee course? What an experience! It's some Dude, of the best theatre I've ever it. seen.
2: Yeah, that's right. It's so full on. And, like, this, you know, it has its critics, you know, not in the least Charlie Kaufman, who dramatized a version of that in adaptation, of course. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I think they're really great foundational principles. And I find McKee better than a lot of others because he's less formulaic than most, actually. Like, uh, 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 most people that I speak to about McKee struggle because it's so academic, you know? Um, But I, I think that's because he's sort of like really. Talking about the fundamental, fundamental principles of like a story, whether that you're telling a story at a dinner party or you're doing a play or you're writing a novel or you're doing a screenplay, all of which sort of have their own kind of, um, you know, unique requirements. But, but Story by McKee is just talking literally about the concept of stories <laughs> and like what makes a good story with some extra fruit, of course, that that is like leaning into movies particularly. But I like that because, you know, like compared to a Snyder. For instance, like Snyder is is the the definition of formula. Like it's like, and that's comforting. Like you know, when you're starting out, to go, oh, I I can see this, I get this. Um, but that's a pathway that leads towards a result that's fairly conventional, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I just like I, I remember an era of my life where I started reading screenwriting books and was like. These are amazing. Like, why didn't I get told about these in film school? I spent all of this money going to film school and, like, nobody cared to tell me about these (laughs) Turns
1: out there's a craft here.
2: Yeah. Yeah, but the irony is that many years later I was, like, cleaning out my closet at my parents' place and I found my old um, curriculums or syllabuses or whatever they're called and I realised that every one of the books that I'd been reading and loving was on the list of stuff that I was supposed to have read. Uh while studying. So I guess you find these things when you're ready for them, but that yeah, they really opened up a new understanding of what it was that we were actually trying to set out and do. Like you kind of can instinctually know that you love Jurassic Park and it's fun to make a movie about dinosaurs, but you would have no idea how to go out and like do your own version of it without kind of understanding the DNA of, of storytelling. Yeah. Just when, when you
1: Brought up McKee. Then I I don't know if you remember this from doing his seminar, and I hope I'm not making this up, but I have a memory of him actually criticizing Jurassic Park as one of the worst Deus Ex Machina's uh, in
2: cinema history. He oh, went to town possibly. on it, and I- a lot a lot of Spielberg's movies suffer from Deus Ex Machina. You know, like even Saving Private Ryan, which is like a masterpiece. You know, it ends with fighter planes coming in and saving the day, and you could go up and down the list, like. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it's not well it's the whole Indiana Jones thing suit. as well that he he has no yep, he has no impact the on the plot whatsoever. Kills. Yeah, which is interesting, right? It's like so you can't be all of this theory that's held in the books of McKee like that supposedly says like this will tell you how to make a good story that people enjoy, that can't be the only way, right? Because everybody loves Indiana Jones. Like here we are like 30 or 40 years later or whatever the hell it is. Still prob I am assuming you guys like Indiana Jones. the first episode, do, right? But Yeah, but by the letter of the law, like that's yeah, that's not a good way to tell a story. Your protagonist has no impact. If he wasn't on the island, if he hadn't got involved, nothing would have changed. They all just would have died on the island thanks to opening the arc. Like, that's that's not good. By you know, theoretically, but it's also a classic. You know, and like same with Jurassic Park, it's like the climactic moment of the story has nothing to do with with the change in the characters and a willingness to do something that they weren't willing to do otherwise like um the real hacky version of that is okay we have dr alan grant at the start of the thing he doesn't care about kids um at the end of the thing he does so in the climax we're going to give him a choice to save his own skin or save the kids and he's gonna step up and save the kids it's like well yeah maybe by the letter of the law that's what you're meant to do but do you need or want that at that point in the story like you just have characters that want to survive getting eaten by dinosaurs how do you complicate that in the most interesting way it's like oh no you know the raptors got out and but oh thank god t- you know the t-rex is there mm-hmm. like uh, it it Know it's a version and it worked and it made billions of dollars at the box (laughs) office and spawned a franchise. And three idiots are talking about it on a podcast now. Yeah, cop that Robert McKay thing about it. Yeah. Yeah, there must be something like that that means that that's you can make that work, but yeah, I do also appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, there's another version of this movie where. Um, Dr. Alan Grant shows down against a, a raptor with his razor claw that he's had in his back pocket all along. not and a he bad uses the, the claw to like bloody slice its throat. And it's like, yeah, end of movie. I mean, that sounds pretty yeah. awesome. <laughs> and then says, <laughs> six foot turkey. Huh.
1: But you know, I think, I think what. It's uh, <laughs> a good line. What, uh, yeah. what uh, Spielberg prioritizes in that moment is that central dramatic argument that he sets up in that opening scene which is about you know life finding a way it's about the natural order of things and there is a a, a, you know a way that that nature works and so in that moment the bigger predator eats the smaller predator and it's sort of like reinforcing the hypothesis of the film which is that nature needs to do its own thing um and messing with it is it, it screws everything up there is a there is a natural order to things
2: But then the other part of it is like, it's a great bloody visual, you know, like that's an all time visual, like, you know, one, the T-Rex, yeah, the T-Rex being attacked by two raptors, the T-Rex beating them, roaring at the skies, the banner falls, like that's pure cinema. And that's like the other layer that I'm trying to bring into like the development of stories that I do now, right? Is you can get real hooked in on, on character and hooked in on story and like, and, and the beats and the turns and you need all of that, right? But it's really, you need that. You really need that. You need to spend 10 years like trying to understand that stuff. But then at a certain point, you need to know when you can bend those rules and go, nah, they're going to get it. Like, because the more cinematic thing to do is just he looks at her across the chopper. He's got the heads of the two kids leaning on him either side and they look at one another and you know, like, and like that's, storytelling That's movie-making. That's movie-making. That's not like a novel. That's not a play. Like, you wouldn't get that in the back row of the theatre, but you get it in a 35 mil, 50 mil close-up of, you know, um, these casts giving incredible performances while they're in the incredible setting of a helicopter, and you pull back and the chopper flies away, and you've got John Williams playing and stuff. And like, you
1: see the birds.
2: Knowing how all those... Yeah, knowing how all those elements come together, like, that's the home yeah.
0: run. Yeah, I just want one more take on the... Dinosaur thing I think there would have been Vision that Everyone's going to love The T-Rex Everyone Like kids and adults alike Are going to think This is the coolest thing I've ever seen Particularly because It's early CG So then So to come up with a moment Which makes the T-Rex A hero Who
2: cares if it slightly Bends the like the rules
0: Having this yeah. like Big No hero- totally
2: I think that's the way Spielberg thinks A lot of the time Right It's like It's not super Heady Um intellectualized storytelling script script stuff. Like, he obviously has a really instinctual or, um, you know, self-aware understanding of that stuff, but I think what he prioritizes more than anything else is, like, what would be entertaining, what would be awe-inducing, yeah. what would be satisfying, you know? Like, what's going to be fun? Because, you know joe from wisconsin isn't hasn't read any storytelling you know script writing books or whatever she doesn't care like she just wants the characters to survive and for there to be a happy ending and for it to be satisfying and like and entertaining um, and engaging exactly entertaining and and engaging you know yeah like um yeah so like having some room in the way you conceive your stories for like those more primal things than like locking in for like, okay, I need crisis. I need a moment where the gap opens up between expectation and result. And I want like it to turn suddenly and like, you know, like all of this stuff, like it's, it's really, 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 really important. But I think that the real mastery comes when you can kind of, you know, when you can get away with not doing it in a in, in completely traditional way, probably. Let's move
0: on to the next 10 pages. So you hand over the first 10 to hook the reader and then you go, well, wait for this. What's the next part of the screenplay that you would hand over after the first 10? And it can be a scene, it can be a piece of dialogue, it can be a section.
2: You're talking if I didn't know what happened next? Yeah, in in this premise,
0: you've, you've handed over the first 10 pages to an executive and they've gone, I really like this, I'm hooked. And you go, well, you'll love this part as well.
2: And and as in, like, of my own creation, not what happens in the movie. No, no, like, what
0: what would be, you know, because the whole premise of this is like the first ten pages is the part that needs to get the reader hooked. Uh, so we've got yeah. that. What's the next part of Jurassic Park? You would s- follow up with and go, this is the other part well, which was which will really
2: stick. What's in inevitable, right, is what Kia was talking about before that, like the dinosaurs are getting loose. Like that's like there isn't much of a movie if they just like, visit the zoo. And, like, the dinosaurs stay in their enclosures. So the million-dollar question is how soon does it all go wrong? And, like, what path does it take to get there? And there's a reasonably convoluted way that, that it does, right? Like, you have this other character that is embezzling embryos and selling them off and feels it necessary to, like, bring down the security system. Like, that's one way of doing it, and it totally works. The other way is just like you know, raptor attacks some guy and like you know, um, throws him into the electric fence and the, you know, or attacks a truck. I mean, basically what you see in the opening, right, is just the the dinosaurs wreaking havoc and systems failing around yeah. them. Um, you know, it could easily have been you know, a, a truck tips over and raptors raid the building and, and attack the command center and bring the electronics down yeah. and thus all of the dinos are free. Uh, so I think if you hadn't Gone and and like um, cooked up that complicated story around Newman from Seinfeld <laughs> uh, and what he was what he was up to and it is Newman that's it is the character's like name is Newman <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean that makes sense that's why he's hiding out in uh, <laughs> yeah, Seinfeld's apartment uh, so I think I think they made the better choice you know like it's more interesting like the sort of espionage kind of angle but yeah the the hacky first thought would just I mean you know those dinosaurs are getting they're free, and you would probably find the easiest path to get them free. So, then maybe
0: it would be like the it's it's an all time sequence the water shaking, the, the arrival, the first time you see the T Rex. But I don't even know, that might not even read particularly that thrilling on the page. It, it's the execution, perhaps, which makes mm. it such a memorable oh, the sound scene. design. Yeah, and, you know, the combination of all this, yeah. such a the, the build of tension um, is incredible. What, what
1: about you, Kia? Uh, I I mean, I have a soft spot for the, the animated DNA sequence, which is simultaneously like the best and the worst moment in the film. Uh, but... Nah, I'm just putting I'm going it's, all in on Beth. it's so good you know, if you're a theme yes it's such a like yeah. at some point we need to do an exposition dump so that people stop questioning how this all happens we need to explain it all how can we just do it quickly and in a way that isn't completely boring just like a scientist explaining something to make it a theme park ride with an animated DNA strand it's just like so brilliant.
0: But even just the fact that Hammond puts himself in it is such a great choice. That, of course, this eccentric billionaire who who ha- says I'm going to bring dinosaurs back, of course he would put himself
2: in the mm-hmm. little tour oh, guide. Man. When you get in the when you get in the tourist shuttle that takes you to the Mars station, Elon Musk is yes, totally talking to yeah. you on the ride <laughs> up, right? Like, there's no way. Jeff Bezos is going to talk to you from the Blue Origin or Blue Horizon yeah, or whatever totally. spaceship when you take now it. Now Elon it. has hosted there's totally a level of ego.
0: Ego, of ego, that's it. Now that Elon has hosted SNL, uh, I'm sure Jeff Bezos is on the phone to lawnmite. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh well, yeah. So you've got a soft spot for that, Kia. Is that your choice? I think so. But the other one that like burns into my brain
1: as a kid, and I just always think of this sequence when I think of Jurassic Park, is the electric fence and the ticking clock of that, knowing it's turning back on, and the little kids climbing it, and the the tension
0: of that is unbelievable. Oh, it's just so good. Mm. And that it's not even it's not even a close call. It's it's a, he actually gets it gets him. Oh, and he just that, gets it. Like which is yeah. amazing. Yeah. This might be crazy, and it might be a thing over time that has changed. But I prefer the first half than the second half. Like the the second, it's an amazing execution. Uh, but I love the, you're talking about the wonder stuff in the early scenes and all the setup. That's it's so revisiting it. That's the stuff. It's so fun. I kind of wish I could watch an hour and a half. Of them just at this park
2: visiting <laughs> the park it... and
0: nothing going wrong. Yeah, man, uh, that stuff gets gets Dude. me more now.
2: Yeah, there's some real wish fulfillment, yeah. especially for kids from the other parts of the world where they don't have access to theme parks. You know, like just the idea mm-hmm. of like going to this exotic location and being caught up in in a kind of coordinated adventure, let alone one that goes wrong. You know, there's something really satisfying yeah. in that. Okay, let's bust
0: yeah. through some must mention m- must mentionable. So, Grant, this section is you can't talk about Jurassic Park without talking about blank.
2: Oh man, I feel like I've 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 blown my load on that already with all of these all right. Nooks we've and Crannies that we've talked about. But you know, the kitchen. Well, I can tell you what one thing that's you know maybe getting way off the track of um, screenwriting though is just the craftsmanship when it comes to the VFX in this. Yes. The fact that we've got like some stop motion, we've got. CG, we've got puppets we've got full scale animatronics like it's incredible and it still holds up and I can say that it holds up so well on a big screen recently here we are in 2020 when I saw it and it's like yeah those full scale 3D dinosaur shots still look amazing like (laughs) T-Rex in the Rain still looks amazing and this is a film that originally in development
0: it was going to be stop motion, but it just it, it matched up so perfectly with the emergence yes. of the technology that they saw, thought, no, we can actually pull this off. So
2: no, you're right. Actually, I said stop motion there, but they, there's no stop motion in the movie, and that's part of the the Marvel yeah. that they were going to do go motion. I think it's technically called like fancy stop motion uh, until in pre-production they started doing these 3D tests. So I. I could nerd right out on this stuff i'm pretty sure it's one of the first movies to have 3d camera tracking in it as well so like the the shots where the gillimimus or whatever like the flock of birds running across the field or the flock of kind of emu style ostrich style dinosaurs (laughs) that's all a handheld camera kind of running backwards or like handheld off the back of a jeep or something um but yeah they they tracked all of that in the computer to be able to put the dinosaurs into it and that wasn't something that had ever been done before so like just keep adding that to the list of first that made this like so awe-inspiring.
0: Um I think you know, we've got to, we've audiences. got to, we've got to just mention Jeff Goldblum how iconic his performance Dude. is and his character. <laughs> yes. Um Sam Neill as Grant. Here's a hot take from me. Well, it's not a hot take, it's maybe a cold take. I would bet that Grant was supposed to be played by Harrison Ford.
2: Oh, interesting. Mm. Anyway, yeah. I'll leave that one with you. I've Ponder. never heard whispers of that, but it's plausible, right? You know, I, I think that Sam Neil—it just feels is such like a... a very Harrison
0: Ford type. Yeah. Even though uh, Sam Neil is so good, uh, I, and I love Sam Neil, but just that—that—that that, that gruff, no nonsense, no time for kids, can't, no good, not good with technology. Just it feels like a very Harrison Ford kind of role.
2: Yeah. Anyway, oh wow, somebody's gonna go and deep fake that and put it on YouTube if uh, if it hasn't happened. <laughs> Please do. Please do no. I mean, it's such a cast of yeah. characters, right? Because bloody Samuel Jackson's in this. Newman is in this. Oh, early Samuel yeah. Jackson. Yeah, I have to mention that. You know, like you yeah. know, you've got a great cast when Samuel Jackson doesn't even have to be mentioned, like because um, he's sort of playing a small <laughs> side character, but bringing so much character. You know, that control yeah. room, the people that are in there. Um, you know, you only get the very smallest amount of time with them, but they feel like fully fledged people. It's pretty impressive. Uh, how few people it takes to run this theme park. There's, like, two people in that control room. Yes. And then you cut to Jurassic World and there's, like, 28 people in the control room. But back in the simpler times, yeah. you know, there was more yeah. automation.
1: Before there were rolling orbs yeah, as transport. Right.
2: Probably a slightly larger operation.
0: That is funny that you mentioned that it is, like, the reason that things go wrong and stay stay wrong for so long is because Newman is. got... I love that we're just calling him, calling him Newman... But um, uh, Newman is just not there, and they're like, "Well, no one else feel could like pos- he's
2: possibly work." Character <laughs> name, maybe? I think. Nah.
0: Yeah, that
1: sounds right. <laughs> yeah, Dennis, It uh, sounds uh, like uh, you can count on. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh. <laughs> you
0: got to say the magic word. So yes, that, that, that is a funny point. That it is like in that control room, there are three people, and uh, there's no backup. There's no backup procedures um nah, nothing
2: uh okay so oh and the unix system when they're like she's like it's a unix system yeah and like she's like clicking around on the world's slowest GUI yes. like animation like going from it's like if we could just have a regular file system this would be so much faster than like having to like fly a virtual camera from one box to uh, the no. next it is a bit at least it's
0: very visual the way the way that they very visual
2: Okay, let's wrap up because you've
0: given us so much more time than I said this would take, so I really appreciate this. So, Well,
2: I wish we could keep going. Uh, so I could I. nerd out about Jurassic Park for forever. We could do a part two on this, but unfortunately, yes, I, I have another engagement. Yes. But uh, this has been so much fun.
0: Well, I Am Mother is on Netflix. The commentary cast is uh, wherever you get your podcasts you're in Sydney you're living in Sydney now are you you're you're working on secret projects yet to be announced is there a, yeah what what's what's going on there that you can reveal
2: pretty much nothing yeah because it is it is a host right. of <laughs> secret projects that I can't yet announce I wish I could there's a couple of things that would be great to be talking about and I've been you know excited to for the longest of times but yeah there's not there's nothing that I can kind of reveal just yet
0: okay well we'll, we'll keep posted. We'll keep watching closely. Grants Spittori. Yeah, I'll, on I'll come Instagram. back. I'll come back. Be a return guest. Okay, great. Yes, please Excellent. Do. Locked in. We'll yeah. take that as a commitment. Yeah, we're, that, is, that is That's a
1: contract. <laughs> I pull that's the same stunt contract. on my show, boys.
0: <laughs> Alright, Kia, thank you so much as always. Yeah, thank you both. That was great. Thank you again, Thanks, Grant. Guys.
2: I hope that was vaguely interesting. I mean, it was so good.